Hello and welcome to the Tequeria Podcast, the production of Points of Presence Media. I'm Jose Formoso. In this week's episode, we talk to people from the Latinx community about the last year of living during a pandemic. We sat down with four different people who all faced challenging circumstances in 2020 and into this year. A digital marketing expert who is a new mom from Oakland, a software engineer who felt relief and remorse about working for an on-demand tech company that thrived in the pandemic, and a company founder whose nonprofit helped thousands of people get better access to health. At the end, we'll talk to an up-and-coming pop star with some of the most beautiful and timely songs we heard in the last year. We'll also hear a few snippets throughout the show from Tequeria.org members who sent us their thoughts on their year's most difficult moments, their times of joy, and the activities they are looking forward to doing the most once the pandemic winds down. We've cut this episode down into two parts so it's more easily digestible, especially if you have kids or a lot of work and can't get in two straight hours of listening. Let's get started. Cecilia Corral is the co-founder and vice president of Product at Care Message. This nonprofit works with healthcare organizations and companies to better connect with clients through messaging platforms. Backed by Y Combinator, the company Accelerator, Care Message started the pandemic as a small company. But after working with hundreds of community organizations to help them reach out to their patients remotely, has ended it as a big part of their technology healthcare infrastructure. Here is our conversation. We're here with Cecilia Corral. Thank you for being here. Let's start by telling us what's the last year been like for you during the pandemic? Yeah, I am having flashbacks to the you know first, second week of March in 2020. And uh, just for a little bit of additional background on Care Message, we're a patient engagement pod for underserved patient populations. And our focus has been primarily working with community health centers and free clinics across the U.S. at a national scale, traditionally helping them fill a lot of gaps in care for their patients and automate other type of communication, basic things like appointment reminders, all the way through health coaching. And when the pandemic started, um, the way we started to see it was in a growth in utilization. One of our product features that allows sort of mass texting capabilities started to just be an uptick in utilization that uh, we were not necessarily fully prepared for, but um, it became this sort of, uh, there was all this uncertainty of there's this coronavirus, we don't know how it's going to affect us, um, our clinics are in real time trying to uh, ease the concerns that their patients have, they're receiving calls from patients. They're trying to figure out their workflows. They're trying to change how they deliver healthcare when they're not able to see people in person. And so that first week of March was just all this, let's figure out what that impact is going to be on our product. Let's figure out how we're going to help our clinics get information out to patients. And one of the other kind of key decisions we made at that point, um, we are you know, we're, we're in the health technology space, but we are a nonprofit as well. Uh, and our aim is to be self-sustaining through the revenue we generate from the clinics that we work with, primarily the community health centers. And so at that point, it was sort of at this crossroads of there's this need, these patients are going to be impacted, and these clinics that are in need need to get this information out. And so at that point, we decided to make our product free for any healthcare organization in the U.S. that was serving underserved patients. 
and just allow them to get information out. I think that, that was a critical piece at that point was the, the speed at which information had to be communicated, whether it was because the city was going into lockdown, uh, because we needed to figure out the mask situation and people needed to be aware of the symptoms and, and all that. It was, it was really interesting to just see in real time and uh, a lot of late nights, a lot of very early mornings uh, and, and seeing all that come through our platform was just really interesting. And, and that's kind of where the pandemic started. And, you know, I, I, I'm happy to go into what that translated into and how that got transformed throughout the year. You mentioned the sense of scale and how it really went crazy that you had to basically change your business model to stay afloat. I'd love to understand what that meant in terms of how that multiplied and affected the the way the technology was used, uh, both from your end and also from the end of the clients that you're working with? Yeah, so before the pandemic, we were working with about 200 healthcare organizations nationwide. Um, that equated to about, I think it was roughly three to four million patients um, at that time before the pandemic. And then in terms of messaging volume, I think that's really where we saw it, where we used to process maybe in the 50 to 100,000 text messages per day and then almost you know overnight getting to close to a million text messages per day it was just a kind of a 10x growth in messaging volume and then as we opened up the platform to be completely free we added on uh, now we have I believe close to 350 healthcare organizations still using our platform so we almost you know, doubled the number of customers and organizations we were working with across the United States and uh, continental United States, Alaska and Puerto Rico included as well. And so um, just, uh, again, the volume of messaging increased, the number of organizations we were working with increased. And it's been, you know, it, I think in the, with everything that was happening and, and our team has been impacted by the pandemic as well, you know, in a, in, in a personal sense, whether it's because people have um, gotten COVID or family members have been infected or they had loved ones, um, you know, uh, pass away as well. And so all of that, I, I feel like what we went through in the last year, it was nice to at least feel this sense of we're at least doing something to help um, because I think there was sort of this global sense of hopelessness in terms of, of how we could move forward and, and playing a part in, in helping um, the clinics that are helping underserved patients, low-income patients that were being impacted the most. I think that was the other piece that was most impactful for us uh, was that we, were, we saw it coming in terms of uh, what we already knew before COVID happened in terms of healthcare disparities for communities of color, whether it's the Latinx community, Black and African-American communities, Native American communities, those healthcare disparities existed before COVID, and we just knew that was going to be exacerbated um, because of, you know, a lot of other uh, a lot of other factors. And so uh, that did become also a component of our strategy was to go out and look for organizations that were predominantly serving Latinx, Black, or African American communities and Native American communities. Um, and we've seen that, you know. Um, amplified in terms of COVID infection rates, COVID death, COVID death rates, and now we're also seeing it in terms of vaccination rates. Um, so it's, it's, 
it's been this whole, I, I think the silver lining in all this has just been the level of awareness um, that has been uh, brought forward in terms of healthcare disparities um, across the United States that, you know, again, had been there this whole time, but I think with COVID, it just uh, brought it to the forefront for a lot of people. How the healthcare industry adapted to the pandemic through tech services is one of the aspects of the response historians will study for a long time. The most significant tech sectors that made a difference included digital chatbots, virtualized patient care, the use of supercomputers and artificial intelligence, the giant spike in data platforms, and the various tech that helped in contact tracing. These were all supported by investments in other tech like cloud computing and 5G. Let's go through them quickly because they're essential for context. For the first time in history, chatbots were necessary because doctors screened patients for possible symptoms without going into an office. Many health systems used the Microsoft bot with natural language processing that asked questions based on the Center for Disease Control guidelines and sent patients to clinical platforms. According to the Health Management Journal's October issue, Thousands of bots communicated with millions of people in dozens of countries by the end of the year. Actual physical bots also got some shine. Wheeled robots delivered food and protective gear to hospitals. Simultaneously, some used 3D imaging and ultraviolet light to decontaminate hospital rooms. The improvement of data platforms also speeded up access to care. For example, Salesforce and Deloitte got together and in less than two months created a remote admin and patient management system called Converge Health Connect for crisis response, which remotely, quote, triage, monitor, and manage treatment of quarantined coronavirus patients. General Electric's healthcare mural tech also streamlined dense data like medical records and ventilator readings to monitor critical patients. Of course, the use of virtual medicine was massive, too. It's hard to believe now, but many U.S. states restricted funding reimbursements for virtual patient visits before the pandemic. Along with federal help providing grants through the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, or the CARES Act, large healthcare systems finally got most of their doctors on board with the Zoom. Finally, AI and computing may have had the most significant long-term effect on all of us. Supercomputers mapped T-cell receptors to SARS-CoV-2 viral antigens to understand how the immune system responds to COVID-19, information that was later used by the vaccine manufacturers. And AI also had a role in contact tracing, which helped with predictive analytics to identify infected people and, in some countries, stop outbreaks. But just as these technologies helped many underrepresented people in the United States, they may also add to the increasing inequality in other countries. A few weeks ago, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development released a technology and innovation report warning global governments that automation and AI may lead to job losses and a reduction of labor rights. So yeah, governments have to work with industry to make sure that, moving forward, everybody benefits. You mentioned the sense of personal connection to uh, COVID, how um, you or members of your family have been personally impacted, um, and we can go from there. Yeah, with my family in particular, so uh, during the pandemic, my mom, I, I'm based in Austin, Texas. My mom uh, 
uh, moved to Austin. I actually got pregnant right at the beginning of the pandemic. So I went through the entire pandemic being pregnant and then delivering during the pandemic. Um, and so my mom made the move to Austin to be closer to us and be able to help out. And one of our biggest fears, I mean, there was so much that we had to deal with during that time. Obviously, I had a lot of medical appointments I had to go to. I had to make the decision of whether I was even going to deliver at a hospital or not. And a big component of that was COVID, that I didn't want to be exposed. So I ended up uh, giving birth at a birthing center because it was just going to be my husband and I and the midwife and nobody else. And so um, these were all just kind of decisions we had to make. And it was just, uh, I think more than anything, this sort of stress of um, potentially being infected and for me being infected and then being pregnant and thinking of the side effects that might come from that long-term side effects. Um, I had that same fear for my mom. And so she stopped working because um, she used to be a um, home health provider. She um, worked with this you know, woman and her elderly parents. And so uh, you know, there was just sort of this fear of her potentially getting infected and, and passing that on. So it, it was that that whole piece was was stressful. And then um, our family in Mexico was probably impacted more than than we were here in the United States. So I did have um, family members that passed away. One of my uncles and his son, they both passed away. Uh, Surprisingly, they were in different cities, but they passed away one day separate from each other. And, and that was um, just impactful to, to, to go through an experience. And, you know, it's, um, it's hard to have a family member pass away and not go through all the regular rituals that you might go through, you know, in the grieving process. And so um, I think more than anything, it was just the the stress of what might happen if you get infected, having to navigate that and, and, and keep yourself protected. And then, um, you know, with, with family members that were impacted, trying to navigate that from afar, which was, uh, you know, which continues to be complicated because it's not, uh, we're still, I think, dealing with a lot of that, um, given that most of the country is still not vaccinated and uh, the same, same struggles that we're having here in the U.S. are, are probably a little bit worse in, in Mexico in terms of access to vaccinations. I'm really sorry to hear that about your family. We have a lot of Latino Americans that have dealt with that. I wanted to get to um, your experience as a woman, as a founder in, in technology. And I, I kind of want to get back to the, uh, some of the, the data that we discussed and, and kind of connect with a lot of your clients. But before we get to that, I'd like to backtrack a little bit and understand where you're coming from and how you got to be a co-founder of this organization. Tell me about your background in technology and entrepreneurship that got you to this place. I grew up in, in South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley. Most of my childhood growing up was actually kind of split. I think like a lot of uh, kids that grow up in the border, you know, your kind of time is, is, is split between the U.S. and Mexico. And, and that's kind of what I what I grew up in and, and in an area that's predominantly Hispanic, um, come from a low-income background. And so when I was in high school, uh, my, my parents, I guess, always kind of instilled in me sort of this uh, sense of focusing on my education. And I think that combined with a lot of uh, teachers that I think also just gave me a lot of confidence in my skill set, um, 
when I was in high school and uh, my junior year of high school specifically, there was this program that was started kind of a guinea pig for my school district and a local community college where they were uh, wanting to pick a few students to put through this program so that they would get a, an associate's degree in engineering before high school graduation. And so uh, again, I, I think it was a lot of the mentorship and, and, and support I had in, in my education that gave me the confidence to even apply for that program. I still, I still remember the day I went to submit my application. It's, it's kind of crazy, but um, that I think was a catalyst for like, you know, it just propelled me in a way that I, I went through that program. I, I, I don't think I would have gotten into Stanford without that program, which is where I did my undergrad. And then at Stanford, I studied product design engineering. Um, and one of the things that um, I really connected with throughout that program, there's just this, this focus on human-centered design, this focus on understanding people at the end of the day and, and designing for people. And I was seeing a lot of my, you know, classmates go off and, and work at a variety of tech companies. Um, and for me, that just did not resonate with me. I mean, I just, I didn't see myself going to a place where I'm A-B testing shades of blue, or it's just like, I, I needed to, I always felt like I needed to be passionate about what I was working on. And that was something that I definitely attribute to my parents, especially my dad, uh, and something that he and I would always talk about when, when I was in college. And so after graduating, uh, I always had in the back of my mind that there was, was this issue with the STEM pipeline. And so I uh, came back to Texas, I started a PhD program in mechanical engineering, and I was focusing my research on um, engineering education in K through 12. That was a part of what I was focusing my, my thesis on. Uh, but during my first year in grad school, my dad, who had been um, diagnosed with prostate cancer, previously passed away. And so that for me just became this moment of reevaluating time and feeling like I didn't want to wait five, six years until I could have an impact in the world or, or, or do something um, about what I knew was a challenge within my community. And so, um, again, because I, these were kind of ideas that my dad and I had always talked about. Um, I remember my, my therapist was just, you need to find something to channel all this grief into and something that's going to give you purpose. And so um, Care Message became that my uh, co-founder, who's actually now, now my husband, um, had started some of this just with the idea of like, can we use text messaging to reach low-income people? Um, and they didn't have a product and it was just kind of an idea at the time. And and I needed something to focus my energy on. So um, that summer I kind of went back out to the Bay Area. I started to um, go into free clinics, sitting in the waiting room, talking to staff, just kind of understanding what their experience was like uh, trying to deliver care to their patients and where these communication gaps might exist. And so I ended up falling in love with healthcare. I ended up seeing a lot of my own experiences growing up in, in a new light. Um, and I also saw this big gap in the way that healthcare is delivered for underserved populations. I think traditionally, the way that healthcare information is delivered or even the way that uh, the healthcare industry as a whole tries to drive behavior change is very much like you need to listen because I'm, I'm the doctor and I'm telling you to do this. Or from a cultural perspective, it's like, oh, well, you know, donate your tortillas, donate your pan dulce, you know, eat this other, these other things instead. And, and 
I was seeing the effect that that was having and whether patients with conditions like diabetes were actually adhering to what they were being asked to do. And so um, that became a core part of the way that we've designed not only the technology, but all of the content that our customers send to their patients is, is grounded on our cultural understanding of what uh, our values and beliefs that these patients might have that we need to respect and we need to, as a healthcare industry, help them make these behavior change modifications so that they lead a healthier life, but do it in a way that's, um, that's respectful, that is uh, empowering, that uh, I think one of the most frequent pieces of feedback we hear from our patients is that it, it, the text messages read like they're coming from a friend. And that's what we're always aiming for, that, um, that we can give them that opportunity to understand how they can improve their, their health and their lives and that the, the clinic can be a resource for that. I have a couple of questions about behavior modification. If you have an example of a particular uh, place that has actually used that in order to change that behavior or actually just attune it to the behavior of a particular community. And then after that, how the free clinic can actually use it. Like, are they working with you to create their own version of it? Who's actually sending the messages? Yeah, so from the, but I'll, I'll call more of like our impact perspective in terms of the effectiveness of the product. Um, we run a lot of research studies with uh, medical schools. And so a lot of what we do in terms of behavior change has been validated through like clinical studies. Um, and so uh, there was one study we did with a community health clinic out in Los Angeles where they had some of their patients use our kind of text messaging diabetes program. They compared it to kind of a control group that did not receive the text messages. And we were able to see um, a reduction in a, a hemoglobin A1C, which is the, the clinical marker for uh, diabetes. It, it, it measures your blood sugar levels for the last three months. Um, so we were able to see a greater uh, uh, statistically significant decrease in A1C for the patients that went through the texting program. And not only that, but the patients that were interacting with the program, because the programs are interactive, um, they saw an even greater decrease in, in A1C. And so um, the way that the programs are designed, and this is the health coaching program aspect of our platform, is that uh, we're delivering usually um, information uh, so that you might receive a text message that's giving you some kind of education. Your A1C exam is your blood sugar test for the, you know, your blood sugar for the last three months. But there might also be messages that are either um, asking you questions. And in our case, the way that that comes into play uh, is where we start to customize the experience. And so if, uh, for example, patient, we might ask them if they have access to a kitchen. Um, there are clinics that we work with that have a high homeless population. And so it creates an interesting sort of design challenge to think about how do you give recommendations on improving um, healthy eating to somebody that doesn't have a kitchen. Um, but those are things that insights that our system needs to have so that we're customizing the information that we're sending to them. Um, so now going into more of like the specifics of the way the product functions. Uh, so for um, a community health center, which are uh, usually a little bit larger, they serve on average, 25, 30,000 patients a year, um, they usually have an integration with their electronic medical record system. And so through that integration, all of their uh, information about their patients, demographic data, 
um, all of the appointments a patient has scheduled comes into our system and our system will automatically generate all of the reminders for those appointments. And then um, in addition to that, we might take uh, a set list of people that for example, might be due for their flu shot or might be due for a cancer screening. They come into our system. Our system will send out a text message reminding them of that, that they're due for that screening. Sometimes we might include just more information on uh, what that screening might be. And then we're, uh, depending on the clinic, can decide how they can pick from different versions of a message they might want to send. So sometimes um, the call to action to the patient might be to call the call center of the clinic and schedule their appointment. Sometimes a call to action for like a colorectal cancer screening might be that they need to actually um, mail in the, the kit that they were used to collect the sample. Um, so it, it, it varies and, and the clinics have the flexibility to sort of decide what clinical uh, areas they want to focus on. Our food clinics are usually doing all of this without an integration because oftentimes they might not have an EMR, uh, an, an electronic medical record system, or if they have one, um, they're affiliated with a medical school or a large hospital where it, it does get a little bit complicated from a, a privacy standpoint where we, we run into some issues in terms of being able to integrate their electronic medical record system with, with our product. But they're still able to use it manually. And, and one of the last things I'll mention that uh, we saw grow with um, over the last year and, and definitely brought on by COVID was the number of messages that were going out tied to non-healthcare related things. So things like food distribution, our free clinics were on top of it. Um, we had clinics that would go out and buy food at Costco in bulk and create bags for their patients to come pick up food. Messages around rental assistance, financial support. Um, I remember one of our product managers uh, told us about a message they had read coming in from a patient to uh, our one-to-one -one messaging tool that's mainly used by case managers, uh, a patient like saying they had not eaten in three days. And so these were things that our clinics were dealing with in real time. And just trying to, again, respond to the needs of their patients that uh, this past year really came down to really basic things like food and housing um, and being able to pay, pay their bills because of the way that COVID impacted a lot of the, the jobs that our patients were working in. I have a dumb question. What happens with people that don't have access to messaging? Right, because I think under under a represented communities, especially black and brown, especially homeless, sometimes don't have a, a phone or a cell phone or something. How are they being uh, reached through this program? So this is all text message based, and um, it's actually you'd be surprised by the high percentage of phone adoption amongst this population. I think the last research study we saw was hovering in like the 90% in terms of having a cell phone. They might not have a smartphone. That is still not like super predominant, but they, they might have just a, a simple like feature phone where they can have basic phone calls and texting. And then when you get into, um, you know, the, the toughest populations, like the homeless population, um, a text message actually, like the, the benefit of a text message over other mo modes of communication is that um, a lot of times homeless patients will keep their phone off um, because they're trying to save their battery. 
But as soon as that phone comes on, those text messages can still be delivered. Access to health technology is indeed a challenge that anyone building for underserved communities needs to think about to make a difference. Harvard School of Public Health found 21% of people in rural U.S. communities don't have access to high-speed internet, including many tribal lands. About 30% of Latinx or black children don't have a computer at home, compared to 14% of white children. Older adults from those communities also face severe problems with low digital literacy, like knowing how to use a computer properly. A study two years ago found 27% of U.S. adults 65 and over did not use the Internet, and about 40% of them did not own a smartphone or a broadband connection at home. When expanded to health tech literacy, all of those numbers mean a substantial number of people, about 50 million, can't look up their medical records online, can't see if they have an appointment coming up, and don't know how to order medicines correctly or on time. It also means they don't have access to the virtual communities online to support them through an illness. When health organizations pay attention to people from these populations, listen to them, and work with them to create tech with them in mind, they tend to be successful equity-wise. A program sponsored by the Mayo Clinic called Fostering African American Improvement in Total Health, focusing on cardiovascular health, is a good example. According to the doctors who started the program, they took different medical data representations to churchgoers and other black community members to figure out how they would best read it and use it. Through in-depth conversations, feedback, and tests, the program came up with an app culturally tailored to the messaging and user interface the community preferred. The program's lead, Dr. La Princess Carver, says this required something significant by the research team, cultural humility. If you're a software engineer, think about this. How often do you know your underrepresented audience to such an extent? The answer is not often. The end product led to high ratings from its users and, yeah, improved cardiovascular health. The continuation of tech literacy challenges in poor and POC communities does present an opportunity for organizations like Care Message. There are about 1,400 or so health centers, community clinics, and free clinics that serve more than 30 million low-income people, including the undocumented. just wanted to ask you one last question, but when your baby grows up, what will you tell her or him about what the pandemic year was for you and for the fam- for, the, for her, for you, for your husband, and the family? Oh, man, that's a, that is a tough, I mean, I had definitely thought he's going to know he's a pandemic baby, <laughs> but uh, I hadn't thought of that. I think what, I, what comes to mind for me, um, and I've, I think since becoming a mom, I, I've just kind of had this moment of um, wanting to know a lot more about my dad and what my dad was going through, like in his youth. And and it's unfortunate because there were all these conversations that now I look back and I'm like, man, I wish I would have asked him about this or I wish I would have known this about him. And I, I still, I mean, I feel fortunate because I have my mom. And so I, I'm getting all these stories through my mom about um, things my dad did in his youth and, and, and my dad's story and what he went through. Um, cause he actually, you know, they, they, both my parents grew up in Mexico. Um, my dad, uh, led some 
programs in Mexico to um, a variety of, of, in his way, social impact projects in his youth that I didn't know about until I became an adult. And, um, and because of the people that he was helping with, that, that, that led to like why my parents even came to the US um, because the work he was doing was frowned upon. And so there's this whole other background story there, but um, I, I didn't come to realize those things until I was an adult. And I, I think for my, for my baby, I think the, the one thing that I, that I think about all the time is just how I can instill uh, the right values in him in terms of giving back and this sense of, of wanting to leave the world better than we found it. Um, so that hopefully, you know, all these things that my husband and I went through in the last year, um, hopefully play a part in how he decides to lead his life in the future. Um, again, in the way that I think my parents had an impact on me and the way that I've decided to lead, you know, my life and where I spend my time. Um, so it's probably, yeah, that's probably, a, it's, it's a long answer, but um, I, I feel the sense of continuing that, uh, continuing those values and, and hoping that uh, I think what every parent hopes for, which is that, you know, our children do better, bigger things than we were able, ever able to. Um, I know that's what my, my parents wished for me, and I'm hoping that he will do the same. And I don't know, inter interested in seeing what that looks like. He's only three months, but <laughs> hoping I don't put too much pressure on him <laughs> by hoping for that. And now for the first of three calls from Latinx in tech about the pandemic year. Let's hear first from Jess Tatiano Cornejo Flores, who is a software engineer for Lever, the San Francisco-based recruiting software company. Hola, hola. I'm Jess Tatiana Cornejo Flores. I am from Ecuador. I grew up in London, and when I became an engineer, I moved to the Bay Area. So a quick shout out to all the Latinos in London. There are more of us than you think. And the pandemic for me was an absolute roller coaster. I got pregnant in November 2019 when things were peachy, and I had like a complete different life envisioned for me and my family and of course the pandemic swept a lot of things away however having my baby during the pandemic has I feel like has actually been beneficial I was able to spend time with her I've actually had her with me working from home with me this whole time only last week she started going to a nanny twice a week but for seven and a half months I literally have been with her every single moment which has been so magical and I don't think I would have had that opportunity if life was normal so I'm really grateful that we had to go through this because I feel like for families this is going to be huge because now employers have been forced to be more flexible and understand that we have lives outside of work and I'm really hopeful that this is going to give more flexibility to parents and allow us to be more present in our kids lives and 
it not be such a big deal that when you have kids around. My baby Ayana has been to so many Zoom meetings and it's been fine. We get a lot, we, we get through things. I just have to have my phone on mute for when she's like a little bit grouchy, but we get through it. And I, I feel like this is a huge game changer. So I'm excited to see how this disruption changes the landscape for workers. So welcome back, everybody. For the following segment, I speak with Jeanette Corona, who is a member of Tequeria. We wanted to speak to a member who not only has a full-time job in tech, but also has a full-time family living in the Bay Area and dealing with this crazy situation and really trying to make the best of it like all of us. But I also wanted to do a little experiment. I wanted to talk to somebody near the beginning of the pandemic and then find out what happened months later. So first... Listen to my conversation with Jeanette in the spring of 2020. So you live with your partner and your three-year-old preschooler at home in Oakland, and both of you have full-time jobs. Can you tell me how you and your fiance are dealing with parenting during this difficult time? Yeah, well, we're actually super fortunate to also, just in the last summer, actually, we moved my mom in. So she's been living with us, I guess it's like nine months now. And honestly, if it wasn't for her, I think we'd be in a, in a very different situation. So yes, we both have full-time jobs. There's a lot of hopping around the house, trying to find quiet time when we have to jump on a conference call. I've had many, many calls where my three-year-old's protesting on the door because he wants to be with me. And yeah, my mom's been like the real MVP, just taking over a lot of his curriculum, playing with him, making him food. And whenever there's a break in between meetings, we go and we take turns. But we're very fortunate to have her. And without her, I just, I don't know. I think we'd have to resort to a whole lot more. And I, and I hate admitting this, but there would be a lot more screen time involved just because you need something that'll keep a young child entertained. And while he loves reading, the books only go so far when he doesn't have a narrator. So that's how we've been managing. And like I said, I think we're super fortunate because a lot of people don't have that, that third person or that you know village to rely on during these times. What is she teaching your son in terms of the curriculum? I know that the difference between somebody that's three and somebody that's six, especially at the moment with this homebound teaching, is quite different. We do have some curriculum that's being shared from his preschool. Before this, he was enrolled in a preschool full-time, Monday through Friday, 8 to 5.30. And they've been providing their curriculum and sharing it through Slack. And so they'll put together different activities about currently for this, the last couple of weeks, it's been about climate. So there'll be activities about the wind, about the rain, about hail, about caterpillars, all things nature and climate. So she'll take those activities and do the best that she can to, to then, you know, host them for, for our son. There's also um, circle time that happens twice a day. So in the morning at 9, almost 10 a.m. and again after nap time, 
So she's involved in a lot of those, and those happen over Zoom. And my mom's just there making sure that he's paying attention. His attention span to see his teachers over the screen is very, very exciting, but I don't think he understands that he has to like sit there and watch. Instead, he tries to go and run and grab his toys and show his teachers. And like, it just kind of becomes like the, a show around like what, where he's the protagonist instead of really paying attention. So she, she aids with pushing that curriculum that the school's providing. But then honestly, the main curriculum that I'm referring to is just her own songs, like stories that she tells, the songs that she sings him. She'll teach him like funny games, like hiding something in her hands and asking him like, oh, which hand is, is in which, you know, and just be like, we call it vacilar and just like teaching those like funny, like hand-me-down activities and they cook together, they make muffins together. And I could totally consider that to be part of, you know, life's curriculum. So fortunately, he has just like her own curriculum that she's making up and passing on to him to learn from. When I first reached out to you, you told me we might create an opportunity for kids of all ages to learn something about themselves that maybe they otherwise wouldn't have learned. It's like the biggest experiment ever in homeschooling, right? So tell me more about that. Well, I do think that there's been this shift for what I call just like child-led learning that we get to really practice at home. And we sought out the school that he's attending. We sought that school out in particular because they also embrace this. But I can speak from my experience growing up and going to public schools like that wasn't always the case. We were expected to show up and structure is better for some kids than others. And I think in this case, we're really just exploring what does he gravitate to naturally? Is it cooking? Is it animals? Is it cleaning. Like there's days where he's really excited about just putting his toys away. And that's something that then we can use to our advantage and help him clean with other things. But I just feel like there are things that he's, we're seeing that he's picking up that maybe in the classroom, there's not always an opportunity for. And as far as like homeschooled children or parents, I should say probably, but I think because so much of the society is experiencing it now, for better or for worse, we're hopefully not just feeling constrained and not just feeling like burdened by this, by the extra task, because don't get me wrong, it's really hard to, you know, have a full-time job and tend to your child's needs at the same time. But hopefully we're also seeing this time as an opportunity to get better acquainted with our children and really see what what they're gravitating to and what do they like to learn about. Maybe the fact that they're not being woken up so early, getting dressed so early and expected to sit in a classroom and the fact that they can, you know, learn in their pajamas and get a little extra sleep. Like maybe these are little things that allow them to show up in their best self because they don't feel like they're the, the structure is kind of imposing on just their natural desire to learn. So I think that a lot of people are already voicing already uh, just how hard it is for parents, but there's also an opportunity there 
to let the children lead and hopefully teach them about something that they wouldn't really be learning in their classroom. So a lot of great things can come from having more time with your children. At the same time, the quarantine has also scared parents. Many fear that they have not done enough to help their kids avoid long-term adverse effects. In a New York Magazine story late last year, reporter Lisa Miller wrote about a study by University of Oregon neuroscientist Philip Fisher, which found that even for kids with doting parents, the day-to-day grind of remote work may affect the serve-and-return dynamic they need to thrive. This is Miller here talking about her story on CBS. First of all, what were the major findings of this study, and were there groups of children that were affected more than others? I mean, the major finding of this of Phil Fisher's study is that the kids who are struggling most before the pandemic are struggling even more in the pandemic. So, you know, kids with disabilities, kids whose parents are having a hard time making the rent, kids who are food insecure, kids who are living in marginalized communities, kids who um, are for whatever reason, like off the grid, homeless kids, those kids, the, the effects of this pandemic, this quarantine, this isolation are really terrible for them. You know, when my kids were little, I read about this concept of serve and return. Explain this concept and how it factored into the research. Right. So serve and return is this very essential evolutionary dynamic between parents or caregivers and their very small children, children under five. And it's that thing that all parents do really naturally, like your baby offers you a plastic toy and you say, thank you. And then you give the toy back to the baby and, and it's the, or the baby fusses or cries and you lift the baby up and you smell her diaper or, you know, there's a kind of constant interaction dynamic between a caregiver and an infant and a toddler that's essential to good healthy brain development. What happens now in the midst of a pandemic where you have stress levels of caregivers going through the roof that a caregiver may physically be there, but not necessarily able to engage in that kind of back and forth serve and return interaction? Right. I mean, that's the problem, right? The more stressed out a parent is, the less, or caregiver, the less he or she is able to give a young child that kind of consistent back and forth dynamic attention. And the less a parent or caregiver is able to give a kid that attention, the more that child suffers. You can check out the rest of that interview and Miller's story at New York Magazine's The Cut site. Back to Jeanette. So tell me about your family. Both of your parents are cancer survivors. How are they dealing with the pandemic? I mean, funny, funny that you mentioned that because one thing that my mom still just, something that stayed with her while she was battling cancer was that you get to choose how you want to see the world and how you want to see things. And this whole notion around like, what is your attitude going to be in your lowest lows and in your highest highs? What do you have control over? It's, you know, yourself essentially, and what what are you going to choose to hold on to? And I think that experience made her and both of them just super resilient and that they're both super optimistic, like the most optimistic people 
And my mom, especially, she's just such a warrior. And having gone through that experience and given where we are today, she's mindful of the fact that our health is like our most premium currency. And it shows as she takes care of herself and what she eats during this time, they're both aware that they have to appreciate their life, whatever is left of it, as they say sometimes, but that they have to appreciate it to the fullest and just not let the the circumstances really dampen their mood because they've lived through sincerely dark and tough times and been able to surpass that. So they keep that optimism with them. There are some Latinos sometimes here, many of them in Mexico and Latin America, that from what I'm reading, seems like they're not taking the situation as seriously, especially young people. You have a younger brother. How is he handling the situation as somebody who might feel like they're invincible? Yeah, I've definitely seen some of that, not in a malintentioned way of not caring per se, but my brother uh, and I got to catch up just in the last week and he mentioned being really bored and that he wants to take a trip to visit some of the cousins. I mean, as I mentioned before, our family is really united. And so I think for him, he's like, if work is is slowing down and his girlfriend who's who's in college, her school is closed and they're seeing this as an opportunity to go you know, hang out with, with the people that they love. And I had to like beg him not to do that because he lives in Long Beach or um, the cousins he was referring to are more in the Northern part of California. And it was so hard. He and I have a seven year age difference. So I always have to think about how to talk to him so it doesn't sound like I'm nagging because that was our relationship for so long is that I always felt like I was his other mom or the annoying older sister who always tries to tell him what to do. And I now I'm really sensitive to that. So I had to figure out a way to convey to him that it wasn't a good idea to leave and that it wasn't about him right now. Like a lot of this staying home is is really not about us, like one personally and one necessarily becoming sick, but it's about the impact that that can have on the greater community and especially our health system. And so I was like drafting this text message and I kept deleting it. And then I would have my fiance proofread it. And I'm like, does that sound too like mean? Does that sound, do you think it'll get across to him? And finally I just, I sent it and he acknowledged it. He's like, I know sis, we'll stay home, but I still have this fear that he's just going to not listen. <laughs> and, and it's because if you feel healthy, if you're misinformed or maybe whatever news outlet you're going to isn't really giving you the facts or isn't doing it in a way that's not resonating. If you just see a bunch of charts and you don't really know how to read those charts, they're not going to sit with you in the same way. So I think that for some of the, the younger folks, um, really just speaking to the situation from a different angle, I think is important. So how do you remain empathetic to that so that people don't feel attacked when they don't want to stay home? Like it's very natural to to want to go out. Your answer resonated with me because I feel like I'm having a lot of those conversations with my loved ones as well. It's really hard understanding if you don't personally know somebody that has had the coronavirus. So how do you understand the gravity of the virus if it hasn't personally touched you yet? 
first there was this layer of disconnectedness where it was like, well, but even if it comes, we're really healthy. And then we started to see the death rates and then we started to see who it was affecting. And then it was just, it, it was pretty clear that no one was really safe because of our interconnected lives of commuting. We have a catering business with my mom. So even her exposure to the food supply and the other cooks, and it was just so clear. And the media helped because then it felt like we weren't overreacting. But unfortunately, then that also created a lot of panic, which is totally understandable. And we just need to continue to help people not not stay in fear because fear is where more stress comes and fears stress is where the immune system is compromised and kind of that chain reaction. So we saw it early on, but trying to not live in that fear is, has been probably the hardest part. So what are you doing to combat that? A lot of it has been reaching out to the people like my community who just does a really good job of, of bringing me up you know, I had my bouts of depression a couple years back. And so there's key people in my life today that I know have a way to reel me back in. And so those people have been really key, like some of my best friends. It's funny, one of them in particular, her last name is Thanos. And so she texted me that like her last name and my last name are the most intimidating last names, <laughs> Thanos and Corona. And but yeah, she's really helped me just and you meant Thanos is the main bad guy of the Avengers series. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That wants to destroy half the population. Fun isn't something one considers when balancing the universe. Right. So it's like, wow, these really, these are our last names and that's terrible. And so she lives on the East Coast. You ask, like, how do you cope? And I'm like, actually, I've been doing a, a really bad job of coping because my go-to has been sleeping which is like really not productive. It doesn't make me feel good because like once I oversleep, I just don't feel good. Like I feel a lot of things lethargic and like it's hard to focus and I'm hungry because I slept through like when I usually would have eaten, like all these things. But yeah, my go-to has been sleep and it's really it's been really hard to accept that and like see myself almost witness my own shutting down because I preach so much to not do that, right? And I value like productivity. But here I am having a really hard time waking up in the morning. And luckily, because I do have a job still, it's like what forces me to stay quote unquote productive. And it's almost like you have alcoholics and you have functional alcoholics. I wouldn't go and call myself depressed yet because depression is very serious and I wouldn't want to like label myself as that. But just this shut down version of myself, like I'm a functional shut down Jeanette. But when I'm not expected to be doing work or I'm not making dinner or I'm not playing with my son, like I, that's my go-to is just I just want to cuddle up and like shut the world away. And so coping has been just being aware of that and reaching out for help to my community. And there's a dance studio here in Oakland that I'm a part of. So they do online classes and I'll do that just to the movement really helps because you can't dance if you're asleep. <laughs> but yeah, just staying in touch with people. I'm part of a sorority. So we hang, we jump on a hangout and we have, we just like check in on each other. So a lot of it really for me comes down to like community and just like being in tune with my body, whether that's breath or movement. 
you know, I try to find distractions, but ultimately, like as someone who is so passionate about mental health and just aware, like I've done a lot of self-work, I still see myself slipping in the sense of like shutting down. And it's it's scary because I've been there before where I, I've been in dark places and I don't want to go there again. So at least now I'm aware of it. Can you tell me about your job and what you've been doing? You mentioned that the transition for personal stuff has been a little bit difficult. Work transition hasn't been too difficult. So I work at a software consultancy in San Francisco. And as a product manager, a lot of my time is in meetings. So as long as I have access to Zoom and a Jira board, I'm pretty much set for the day. Um, and Slack, of course. I do find myself getting distracted and just like trying to figure out how to get back into the zone after I just went through a tantrum with my son or I just played with his dinosaurs. Like, how do you just jump back into it? It's That's kind of been my, my challenge. So I've been doing the best that I can. And I don't know if there's like a perfect balance, but I, I am super, super fortunate that my company was already super remote friendly and that my immediate manager is a mom, so she gets it. And I think that's been more than anything, just having a manager and leadership who understand what it is to be a parent and understand that like we are going through like a crazy time and being just understanding that your schedule is going to be different during these times is is a lot of help. I would (laughs) love it if we could get some sort of, gosh, I don't know what this looks like. I don't know if this is a quantitative thing or not, but the idea of just working these 40 hours, like full-time a week on top of everything that's happening is, it feels like a recipe for burnout. So I don't know how, the fact that I still have a job just makes me feel super, thinking of the Spanish word, not the English word, but um, ungrateful. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I was going to say like, malagradecida. Should I say it or should I not? But yeah, I just felt like super ungrateful for for even thinking this. But I was like, the 40-hour work week on top of my fiancé's startup, on top of like trying to keep my mom's catering business alive, just it feels like a recipe for burnout, you know? And I'm just like, how do I advocate for myself? And is it working less hours, but I can't afford that? Like, I can't afford to not get a full paycheck. I've been thinking about like, how do I self-sustained during this time because to do this and I was already doing it of course but it's just like it's compounding in a different way now that we're under the pressure now that we're home all the time now I don't know how other companies are doing it or if someone has to set a trend but this idea to expect your employees to like work at the same productivity level or even the same amount of hours just feels like absurd but it just doesn't feel like like something's got to give at some point. While all parents have felt the pressure to stay on the job while taking care of their children, research studies have found that, on average, black, brown, and Asian women have faced even more of it in the last year than anybody else. One data point supporting this? More women from these categories have stopped working, whether by choice or not, at higher rates than white moms. And single moms have had it worse. The U.S. Census Bureau found that the percentage of unemployed single moms of those three ethnicities is almost double that of white women. And even if they are working, 
Black and Latinx moms have had to worry more in the last year because they're less likely to have help with childcare, have less access to mental health care for themselves, and are more likely to face racist work environments. Women of color in the service industry have taken on the most significant burden, of course, but women in all other industries, including in tech, have also faced tough times. A recent study from Project Include, the nonprofit equity advocacy organization, found that during the pandemic, 45% of black women in tech said they experienced, quote, more or much more race or ethnicity-based hostility since the beginning of the pandemic, compared to 41% for black men. 30% of Asian women experienced racial hostility compared to 16% of Asian men and 26% of Latinx women in the technology industry felt the same compared to 11% of Latinx men. Another critical stat I'm sure Latinx parents understand is from the National Center for Health Statistics. They found that 40% of Latinx nationwide reported experiencing frequent symptoms of anxiety or of depressive disorder between April 23rd to November 9th last year. Other studies found that about three out of four mothers have felt moderate to high anxiety during the pandemic, a rise from the pre-pandemic number of one out of four. In an NBC News story, Marissa Echenique, a clinical psychologist at the University of Miami, said Latinx women are the ones that tend to feel worse than anyone because they, quote, try to be superwomen and help everyone all the time. We know that the pandemic can take a toll on relationships. How's yours going? So he's been working from home for a while now, and he is just so productive. It's annoying because he's learning how to garden. He's like reorganized so many parts of the house. He's like cleaned out our air filters. Like he's just doing all these side projects and running his startup. And then he wants to like teach himself like just this other programming language. Like he's just hyper productive. And here I am like struggling to just like stay awake. And so it's been a challenge in the sense that I feel this need to compare myself. You know, I'm like, oh, why is he still waking up early and he's still able to do these things? But I feel like our relationship has actually gotten stronger because as I've spoken up about these things to him, he's like really shown up and just reinforced like, hey, this is a transition for you. Like, you have to honor that transition. And if you need help waking up, like I'll help you wake up and just like not shaming me in any way, but also like help trying to figure out different ways to help and just not making me feel bad about the fact that I, you know, I did one thing today and it was like shower, or whatever. <laughs> but we, we did have to bust out the whiteboard yesterday actually, and make a list of inside date ideas my fiance also <laughs> loves acronyms. So he's like, this is our itty. And I was like, what's our itty? And he's like, inside date ideas. And I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so we made this list. It's, I'm staring at it now. It has like 12 things on there. And and yeah, we're just getting creative. And it's been, it's been great because I love quality time. That's like my love language. And now here's the interview from this week. Let's see how Jeanette's doing. So you listened to the conversation from a year ago. Let's talk first about COVID. Is everybody okay in the Corona household? 
<laughs> yeah, we're doing great. We've had a couple scares. I just had one last week. Yeah, so in, in the last year, I've had four COVID tests, three of which were actually because I was sick. One I took more for, so we actually had a COVID wedding. So one of those tests was to have this wedding. <laughs> but three out of four of those times I was actually sick and all three of those times I was negative. So that's a win-win and nobody else in my family has gotten it. So tell me about your wedding. When was it? <laughs> yeah. Was it a Zoom wedding? What, what happened? It was, it was a Zoom wedding, which I, I remember telling my now husband, I'm not going to do it on Zoom. I spend every day on Zoom for work. I'm not going to have a Zoom wedding. <laughs> we looked at other platforms, um, which there are a bunch now. And it was a lot of fun. It was in the fall, October of last year. Ten of us got together in person. And those are the, the ten of us that got tested and we quarantined. And we all got together at this Airbnb. We got to masks off, just be with each other, hug. And because it was no longer a 200-person wedding, and instead it was a 10-person wedding, we were able to hire a private chef. So they cooked an all-vegan meal, multiple courses, and we had a blast. We danced a lot, and I just got to like really savor the day, like multiple days at this beautiful venue. On Zoom, we didn't quite invite the full 200. We just, we were worried about bandwidth issues and just like not having it feel intimate on Zoom. So we narrowed that down a bit, but then had breakout rooms. So funny enough, my husband's groomsmen, one of them was like the Zoom master. And he, he also works at a tech startup. So he knows zoom in and out and he was putting people into breakout rooms and i had br five bridesmaids he had five groomsmen and each of them led different activities like in their respective rooms so it was almost like you were sitting at a like table at, at a party at a reception yeah yeah exactly so we had our first dance that everyone got to see folks got to hear the toast and then after the first dance we went to each breakout room and thanked every table and that took so long we cried so much that day just like of happy emotion and we really felt the love even though it was virtual so that's really cool congratulations thank you so i had in my questions COVID, okay. Second, relationship, question mark. Seems like relationship, good. Yeah, relationship's great. <laughs> yeah, we're still both working from home. And I just don't know that that's going to change anytime yeah. soon. I remember what you mentioned that your uh, then fiance was coming up with this calendar of activities. <laughs> did you continue yeah. doing the activities? We did a couple. We did a couple and then it got... And then it went just like wedding planning central and all we could ever talk about was a wedding. So I guess if you count those dates, <laughs> we had so many. That's nice. Uh, I wanted to ask how your mom is doing because I know that you had uh, moved her in like six, seven months before. How is she doing? How is she handling it? 
Yeah. So my mom's had a just tremendous turnaround in this last year. She really started, she was already on this like healthy tip given her breast cancer survivorship, but it totally took on another, just like a more intense route during COVID. She had a, a Stairmaster at home, would get on and uh, barely lasted maybe three minutes on it. And she was like out of breath and it was really challenging at the beginning. But this woman like just continued to PR herself. Like she would set a personal record and be like, I can do three and a half minutes a day. I can do five minutes a day. And before we knew it, started running outside, which I just, I never thought my mother would run out outdoors, but we, we would do it together. And then she started out running me. And now she's up to five and a half miles every day. It's amazing to see. She doesn't go a day without like getting, I think now she's addicted to that <laughs> endorphin rush. It, it's given me a deeper understanding as to how health and lifestyle, you can't just like read it. You can't just watch it. Like until you have a, a community and other people around you, either like cheering you on or holding you accountable or just like being able to hold your hand through it. I think it, it makes a, a big difference. Like her, her sisters are constantly like, how do you do it? How do you stay committed? And I really do believe in the power of like community and just seeing that once you're surrounded by a certain like mentality, because we're all pretty active here then that just like you are who you surround yourself with. Fourth question is, how's the baby doing? He's, he's uh, grown a lot. He's dying to have a pet now that we have this big backyard. <laughs> so I think it needless to say, he's gotten a little tired of the adults. That's who he spends most of his time with. So we're actually in the process of looking at setting up like, a pod. So that we can make take make just a group, maybe keep it between two to three families and leverage our yard to have a pod teacher and start doing some structured activities with other kids. Because I think Zacarias is is definitely missing that socialization with kids his age. How um, old is he again? He's four. He'll be four and a half over the summer. So he's at that age now where he's in imagination land always like making up stories and like using his own toys to like create his like own world what else comes to mind that you think would be good to express to people well one of the things we talked about a year ago was that this was a recipe for burnout and that full-time parenting i knew that this wasn't going to be sustainable and um, actually, right before the wedding, I started a new job. And that was the biggest difference in my mental health just in the last six months. Because when I started this job, I advocated for a 32-hour work week. Mm -hmm. And I talked about taking a step back, and I just didn't exactly know how. And of course, I was worried about the finances. I didn't want to take a pay cut. But at the end of the day, I think more than anything, all these what ifs 
made a huge difference. I think that the productivity, just like the expectations, it was an unrealistic way to keep living. <laughs> At least in my job, you don't stop thinking just because those 40 hours are over. You're still thinking about it at night, in the evening, in the morning, before you even start your day, and over the weekend. So those 40 hours are really more like 50. But I would say like for anyone who's, who's listening and is negotiating their own health, that's where I would say to think twice before you do that. As a mom, as a business owner, just as a employee, there's so much that comes out of you prioritizing yourself. You know, there will always be work. <laughs> That's something I, I learned. And that shouldn't come at the expense of your own health or quality time with your family. So when I listened to the, the recording from last year, it was healing to listen to my own story. I talked about feeling like I was shutting down and just, I think at the time when we spoke, there was like just a lot of pressure. Like, how are we going to, how are we going to make this work? And feeling like overwhelmed and not necessarily having the words for it at the time, but I can sense it in my voice. I can sense it in what I'm saying and to listen to that and then see where we are today. But also feel so validated that I felt that way, you know, and it's not something that when I listen to other podcasts, you're not often hearing this perspective. And so I just wanted to say thank you for bringing these stories. It's not common to hear from moms, I think, these days, like Latina moms, what it means to raise a kid in a pandemic. Thank you for opening up some space for us to be able to honor our stories. Well, I'm happy and grateful that you made time for us. And that's the end of the first part of this episode. The second part is available now, so if you're ready for it, go on and check it out. Before you move on, though, listen to a song by Clara Yokes, who we'll be talking to in the second part. The name of the song is Apuratai, and it talks about all the things that Clara loves about her hometown of Lima, Peru, and its surroundings. She told me she wrote it on the bus on the way to the Highlands, where she saw a young mom nudge her kid to hurry up or to Apuratai. Cielo gris, ojos café, comida de lima, corre mi ser, congestión, hay que orar a no. Vengo desde aquí nomás, si no pienso tropezar, Apuratai, Apuratai, corre ya. No me importa tu Sin control andante ¿Qué más podría pasar si me quedo aquí? No me importa tu gris Vivo mil cosas aquí Siendo triste o feliz Tú estás en mí Corre el tiempo, corre el reloj Si es que Luego se van, rayo el sol, saltador. Apúrate, apúrate. 
That was Clara. If you want to hear more about her career, what she's been up to during the pandemic, and why she named herself after part of an egg, click on. We'll also talk to Alexia Nunez, who stayed home in Boston for more than a year, not just because of COVID, but because of fears of violence against her during a very difficult political year. This episode has been produced by myself and Neil Godbole at Airship Laboratories in California. See you then.